Hi everyone and welcome to Marketplace Jungle, brought to you by eChameleon. I'm your host, Jesse Ragg. Today's guest has walked the halls of some of the world's biggest companies, from Coca-Cola to Kellogg's to Nestle and MasterCard. Dean McElwee is now the Director of Global E-Commerce Collaboration at Stanley Black & Decker. This is a long one, so settle in. In this episode, we covered a huge range of topics from Dean's e-commerce journey, and it was really interesting to hear how some of the biggest names on the planet tackle the same marketplace issues which we all face. Expect to learn how much of your time you should spend focusing on marketplaces, how to ensure your presence on marketplaces aligns with the rest of your brand messaging, when and why brands should take back control from their retail customers, how to decide which products are right for which channels, and much more. If you're enjoying our journey through the Marketplace Jungle, please do subscribe to the show on whichever platform you listen to podcasts. It helps the show to get more exposure, which in turn helps me to continue to get great guests to share their insights. Thank you so much for joining on the journey so far. We are only just getting started here. And now, with no further ado, Dean McElwee. Dean, thank you so much for joining on Marketplace Jungle, where we like to talk about everything to do with the world of marketplaces beyond Amazon. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Great to be on. Dean, you've got a huge amount of experience at some of the world's top brands. Stanley Black & Decker at the moment, you've worked with Coca-Cola, MasterCard, Nestle, what feels like anyone who's anyone has at some point been graced by your presence. So it's really great to have some of your time to talk about marketplaces and e-commerce in general. But before we jump into my questions around how the big players handle marketplaces, I'd love to begin by getting a little bit of an introduction to Dean, how you got into e-commerce, what your experiences were that, that brought e-commerce onto your radar and, and how you've ended up here today. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm probably one of the latest starter to e-commerce. I, I wasn't really that much involved until about sort of 2011 onwards. And I think what attracted me to it was what attracted me to things right at the beginning of my career. I studied computer studies back in the day when I was still at school. So I was always fascinated by computers and I was fascinated by analytics numbers. And I think as my career has progressed, I've gone through more of an omni-channel background and then come closer to the e-commerce world. And I think that's because I enjoy the analytics behind it. And e-commerce is fascinating with the amount of analytics it has. It's got such a real depth and breadth and quality to the amount of analytics you can do. So it really encapsulated my sort of strengths of being able to understand how people shop uh, from my background in Omnichannel, and then understand the analytics and use that to make decisions about how we get a market. So where was the first company that you took that step from sort of offline to online? Probably had a couple of different um, iterations of it. So, so the first sort of one was really in about, well, about 20 odd years back when, when the company that I worked for, which was originally a, a merchandising company, started creating the first online catalogs for um, a retailer. They were busy launching in South Africa and they're launching um, online shopping. And we did a fantastic amount of work trying to categorize that and categorize all the products in the shop. On, in a way that would suit the, the online shopping environment. We had to sort of rethink how the, how the retailer cataloged those products because, you know, they'd had a, quite a typical and probably stereotypical category, deep sunk category classification. And we went in and worked out 
how could we do this in sort of three clicks? How could we make that taxonomy work in three clicks? So I was really fascinated by that at that stage. And that was my sort of first introduction to that. And then later in my career with, with Nestle, I started getting a bit closer to it. Um, and then moved through to loyalty programs at MasterCard. And believe it or not, loyalty programs and online are, are quite close in many ways because loyalty programs are about understanding your consumer and your customer and understanding what to do with them and also leveraging how people shop to send them relevant offers was was one of the things that we specialized in doing that um so i got a bit closer to that after that and then it's gradually sort of migrated there i'd, I'd love to say it was this linear straight path of i decided to do it in that order but i think it's more i've gone where i've found something that's interesting um something that plays to my strengths and something that that I feel is evolving and you need to be ahead of. Interesting. And so from a because obviously your your very your focus has always been omnichannel in the yep. sense that e-commerce plays a, a role, but just one of many roles or it's one of many channels for revenue generation for a company of this of these sizes. And I'm curious from your perspective, what percentage of your time do marketplaces and also e-commerce get compared to the rest of the omni-channel channels, be it offline yeah. or motor or, or wherever else, whatever else you would be putting uh, in there? So I think it's dependent on the roles, interestingly enough, um, as I've gone through businesses with different maturities. So um, when when I spent time at Kellogg's, it was it was a very omni-channel focused business. Marketplaces were were there. It wasn't a large component to the business, and that's because the unit economics of things like breakfast cereal and and Pringles, which we sold, you know, to ship those and and actually make money after the shipping is quite expensive for most uh, pure play pure play retailers like Amazon. So. The focus there was very much on the omni-channel side of the business. How do you make sure that as that omni-channel grew, that you could keep your market share both online and offline? So the focus was really a lot there in trying to specialize that. And as I've moved into the tools environment where I am now, it's, it's a lot more about scaling marketplaces and scaling where those shoppers are, because I think they're there's quite different buying behavior between the two. There's a lot more frequency on, on grocery shopping. You shop probably once a week, once every two weeks. In the tools category, which I'm in now, those lead times are a lot longer. You don't go back and shop for the same thing over and over again. So it's, it's, it's about a different journey. And so a lot more of my time at the moment is spent more on marketplaces. How do we how do we expand on marketplaces? How do we make our products more conveniently located for the shoppers that are there? Because I think there's and I made the I made the mistake when when I joined thinking, oh, everybody shops omnichannel here still. And um yeah, as I started diving into the research and we conducted a bit of research about how do professionals shop, a lot of them are shopping online for this type of category and they're comparing prices and and they're using Screwfix, Mano Mano, a couple of the other Amazon, a couple of the other marketplaces to really dive into into what's new, what's current, and get pricing. So I think it's it's really shifted. Um, you know, I, I came in, assumed, and the assumption was wrong. Learned a bit, and then 
then recalibrate it to see how do we focus on marketplaces going forward. So when you say marketplace, what comes to mind? Do you see a sales channel or a marketing channel? I see both. Um, and I see both for a couple of reasons. One is that I think this idea of sales being there and marketing being there is relatively antiquated. And I think, you know, if, if we sort of wind back 20 years and I always say to people, marketing was always out there. We, we saw a billboard, we drove past a billboard. We knew when the advert was coming in the, in, in the TV program that you're watching and you ran off to get your tea and you came back, maybe caught a bit of the ad, you caught the radio slot. With the advent of social media and new sites changing from being print-based to digital-based, advertising is everywhere you look. And so it tends to be here and present in every single environment, whether you're shopping or marketing. I don't think it's as clear as clear cut as, as people would believe. So I think it's, you know, marketplaces are that combination of, of the two of those. And I think, you know, it's, it's not an, not a stat. I'm going to quote a stat now that's not intended to die, you know, divide audiences in terms of sales and marketing, but just to highlight the fact that if you look at an Amazon brand store for any one of your brands, and then you compare it to your brand website in the same country, you'll often find that the, the number of glance views on Amazon far exceed the number of visitors to the site and the amount of traffic going through the site. So I think you, you've, you've got to recognize that our people are there. They're not always in shopping mode. They are sometimes in um, Google has a, has a lovely piece that they did of their online shopping called Decoding the Messy Middle. And in that messy middle, they talk about shoppers informing and evaluating their alternatives. And really, it, it's, it's really poignant, particularly in certain categories like ours. You know, people, people don't buy tools all the time. So they're going online to a marketplace to inform themselves, to evaluate it to look at ratings and reviews because it's a fairly high ticket purchase. So I think, you know, seeing, seeing it for what the behavior is, understanding that not every, every visit has to be a purchase, <laughs> but what you are trying to do is make it, make it a meaningful interaction so that when the trigger comes, you can convert them. It steps in the journey. It, yeah. it speaks for having on Amazon, for example, high quality A plus content that tells the consumer as much information as you possibly can in the language that they expect to find on Amazon. Yeah. It might be very different to the language on eBay because they might not have discovered, or they might have just discovered the product for the first time there. And as you say, they're going to go away and they're going to research it, but they need to have all of that information in as many places as possible in different language that's giving them the information as and where they need it so that wherever they then buy it, somewhere along the road, they're going to end up with that well impact driver or whatever it might be yeah and that's the product that they've had to discover along the way yeah and i, I think that's absolutely key key is understanding what is that message that you're trying to get across i say to to a lot of my colleagues if we're sitting on amazon we're trying to educate and inform people and inspire them so you know our, our products are quite complex. They have a large number of features and benefits, and you know there'd be a multitude of applications and use cases that would be. So, how do we 
help them make a decision at that point in time by giving them enough information to be able to do that. And then looking at added things like tool selectors, how do we put, take you through a use case to say, here's, here's what it is, because there's any large number of drills, but not all of them can be used in the same place in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really educating and informing them so that you get that conversion. Messaging is a really interesting topic because that's something that marketplaces, uh, excuse me, that brands struggle with, with marketplaces in the sense that many brands, when evaluating a marketplace strategy, will, one of, one of the most common objections you hear is, uh, it'll cheapen my brand, whatever that means. But I think where the concern comes from that leads to that line of thinking is it's going to be inconsistent messaging. You know, when you look at how yeah. a pair of Nike shoes is represented on Amazon, where every Tom, Dick, and Harry can sell the same pair of shoes, and that listing might have been created 10 years ago by some retailer that has 100,000 different items and just wants to get them up as quickly as possible. So they don't care what the title, the bullet points, the descriptions look like. They just know it's going to sell. They just have to get it online. And brands have traditionally had to fight against that to regain control of how their brand is represented on marketplaces. And there's different ways you can do it. Either you can bring it in-house and, and train your internal marketing team to work with marketplaces, or you can find a marketplace agency or specialist or a dedicated retailer that does well on marketplaces that you can trust to market the products on the marketplaces in a way which is in line with your overall messaging. How do you solve that at Stanley Black & Decker? First of all, I don't think we've solved it completely at all. Okay. And I think it's still a journey. I think my, my reflection on that is you've got to look at the differences in the way we've gone to market for so many years and understand that this is a new muscle that, that, that you've got to create in the business. Most of us, virtually all of us, have all gone through big wholesalers and they control the shopper experience and they control the shopper communication. And they are exceptionally good at attracting shoppers into their stores through great shopper messaging. Brands are really, really good at consumer messaging and mm-hmm. understanding the difference between those two is, is the first step. So consumer messaging is really about understanding what the distinctiveness of that brand is. Be very clear on what makes that brand what it is and also what it is not and be clear on what that proposition is. So, you know, when I worked at Coca-Cola, there were always real golden rules, and you can see it through all their advertising, is that there's always a Coke glass or a Coke bottle, glass bottle, in a lot of their advertising. There's always the tagline in the same script, and there'd always be a jingle or a sound attached to most of the adverts. So they're trying to create distinctiveness for recall, because mm. effectively what happens when you, when you, get a brand is you're attracted to its distinctiveness, its point of difference, and its identity. So if you take something like Red Bull versus Monster, they're two completely different brands playing in the same category, but each has quite a distinctive identity, which we can both understand. Whereas I think in the shopper environment, shoppers are doing something different. Okay, And I always say to people, consumers have needs and shoppers make choices. So when you're talking to consumer, you're talking about fulfilling a need. So I'm thirsty, I'm looking for refreshment. The shopper's trading off with his choices and he's going, how much, where, where's my location? 
How am I doing that? So it's about making sure that you can help them with those trade-offs. So for us, for example, one of the things that we've been looking at um, internally is, is how do you communicate quickly in an infographic type of way because that shopper's attention span is so short what the applications are for a drill. So can we go through concrete? Can we go through steel? Can we go through wood? Can we go through brick? Now, that's not something that you talk about in an advert as okay. your consumers because you're more trying to tell them about this brand is built tough if it's, a, if it's made in the U.S., particularly for that market. That's important. But for that shopper, you're trying to communicate what he can use it for and why your brand is the best option. So it's more conversion-focused communication, and I think we're not as, as developed as we should be on that. And I think that's really because it's been a lot of sort of mass market stuff, whereas you've got to tailor each of those to the distinct environment and understand how people consume information. You know, we, we were talking the other day about our, our planning and our team's busy um, doing the 2024 second half plans um, on our sort of above the line and, and that sort of rollout for all our websites and stuff. And at e-commerce, you're not in marketplaces. You're not thinking about that. You're thinking about, you know, where, when's Prime Day coming? What am I going to do for for Cyber and Black Friday? So it's a lot closer, and therefore it's a lot sort of more tactical and and trying to convert to sale. We've got to be a lot um, more agile, I guess, than yeah. what these big corporations are probably capable of. I imagine there's a lot of red tape that gets in the way that would make those split-second decisions that you need to make for selling on marketplaces that could make it quite hard to, to tackle that. Yeah, I think it does. You know, I, I always talk to to people about what I call the e-commerce amplification effect, how going digital and getting involved in digital retail challenges a brand on how they operate. Um, and that's because what what we're all used to doing is we're used to doing, you know, as you said, I put up a website and I'm not going to change the content and pretty much because it's it's there so people can find information on the cereals and nutritional table. But I'm not really engaging them. Why well, haven't adopted a method of engaging? Whereas in e-commerce, what you have to do is you have to engage people. And you have to engage them all the time. So it's getting you a lot closer. And our businesses aren't, aren't yet all mature enough to take that into account. Because, you know, we're used to doing legal approvals. We're used to doing marketing approvals. Um, and we've built those timelines over years and evolved them over years. Now, now you've got a D2C team, for example, saying the weather's bad. It's about to snow. We need to knock up an advert for a snowblower and it needs to go out on my mailer by Friday. Um, <laughs> because the snow is going to have melted if we don't get it, get it out there. And so those are the types of things that you've got to wrestle with. And, and that leads businesses to have to rework those processes and understand. And even sometimes, you know, even covered those processes because those processes have been built up and that's just the way we do business. But nobody's actually looked at that, that process in real detail because they haven't had to. And now you've got to go and understand timelines to get stuff out in the sort of next couple of days and how you rework things to do that. So if you had a magic wand and could somehow do something to make it easier for companies of this size to become agile and to make it possible to have a shortcut through this red tape and the corporate politics yeah. to be able to emulate what a small D2C startup 
that's been that's you know maybe Amazon native that's you know a team of 10 people that they can change direction at a moment's notice how could you emulate that in a company of your size I think it's very difficult to emulate that and I think what you've got to do is you've got to clearly articulate the need for what, what type of content you need at what stage so what we're busy doing at the moment is looking at what is the difference between evergreen content, promotional content. Um, codify that up for your business to say, how does that differ for each of those environments? And then what is the need for me to get that out by when? And to do that, you've got to have pre-approved templates and pre-approved situations. So you've got to look at all the alternatives and agree the context up front because Quite a lot of the process is not necessarily about the production. The technology can produce a lot of content pretty quickly right now. It's more about the things like legal approvals and marketing approvals. Is this on brand? So go to templatized approaches for that and look at how you plan that and make sure that you've got those at the ready so the only things you're, you're agreeing are taglines and things like that. And even taglines and things like that can be pre-approved. Yeah, if you look at some of the businesses I've worked for, there's been very clear call to actions and there would have been about 10 or 12 call to actions that were approved and they were approved for each retail environment. Um, uh, so how does a convenience call to action differ from a marketplace call to action? Yeah, the, the, those are different shopping environments and it's about understanding what that person's doing in each of them. So you mentioned that you see marketplaces as, as both a sales and a marketing channel. I'm curious, in Stanley Black & Decker, who, who owns marketplaces? Is it something that belongs to the sales team or the marketing team or the IT team? Or So ownership is a challenging word because I don't think any of us own anything. Mm, okay. um, I think what we, we all need to do is focus on what is the job to be done for whom? So the job to be done is how do we attract people in, in that environment? Um, and different channels contribute different things to your, to your business. So you, you've got to realize what the differences are between those. From an execution point of view, we have a clear Amazon team that does it. We are very fortunate that we've got our own content studio and content capability studio. So quite a bit of what I would call now evergreen content so content that wouldn't change that 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 much a plus content on marketplaces videos and and the imagery will come out of the studio and they will produce it if it's opportunistic things like prime day or cyber monday or some of those special events we might have an outside agency producing that just to be more flexible and just to understand the the pressure that the studio is under because they're producing content for a lot of different retail environments, not just e-commerce. Mm -hmm. yeah, they're, they're producing for trade shows. They're producing for a lot of our dealer events. A lot of our, our products tend to be more interactive. And so we need a lot of content production in that environment. So I, I think it's, it's just how do we work together on that? Um, there is the age old challenge in every single business, which is where's the money being spent and you know, it's, it's a challenge we haven't yet mastered. It's a challenge that's been given. Make no mistake about that, which is, can I get a full P&L to understand of where, or a full 
summary of where the marketing money is going. Is it going in retail media? Is it going in trade shows for each brand? Is it going above the line? Is it going social? We're not there yet. We need to get there. Yes, I think we do because it depends on where your shopper is and where the buyer is. You know, if, if it's some of our more sophisticated products, that buyer is probably on LinkedIn um, or some of the more trade-specific publications um, and trade-specific um, web websites. So we, we haven't yet got a handle on that, honestly, but it's it's something that we need to work together on. The other side of that, of course, is that with the money that's being spent, the question is also where does the money, the money which comes in, where does that then go? Because a topic that often comes up is, you know, what, so we're, we're adding a new sales channel or sales channels, marketplace, yeah. that's a whole new revenue stream or, or multiple revenue streams. And it's very easy to add that to the pot, but to grow a marketplace business that needs to be reinvested in the marketplace business, either into the people running that so that they're motivated yeah. to continue to do so well and not jump ship to the next shiny Amazon store, but also to making sure that, you know, listings are being promoted, that the content's being created well. And I think that's something that a lot of companies struggle with is that they take this money from this new revenue channel and they put it on top with everything else, but the amount that they dedicate towards this new revenue arm stays the same and it doesn't. Yeah continue to grow with it. And I think some companies, something that a lot of companies do well is even set up an entire new business. I've spoken to, and this, this is quite early in the in my podcast journey, but already yeah. I think I've had two or three guests now where they've referred to businesses which have gone, you know what, this marketplace side of thing, it's its its, its own beast. And we don't want to hold it back. So we're going to just found a whole new company and we're going to put the couple of people who can do this well in that yeah. company. We're going to let them take care of it and we're going to give them the resources that they need and we're going to make sure that we're reinvesting in it and any money they earn, they can reinvest into that. And I think that's also a really interesting way to do it. I'm curious if you would see pros to doing that or cons versus keeping it under the same umbrella. Um, it's an interesting approach, but I, I, I'd probably also with it depends. So, and the, the reason why I say that is because you are right, marketplaces is a, is a quite specific beast and if you look at succeeding in a bricks and mortar environment in physical stores, the vendor or the supplier does a ton of work. You know, they're doing planograms, they're going out and doing all the advertising, they're making sure that they get eye level on planograms and they're doing a lot of the negotiations. So a lot of the work falls on the vendor. Sorry, uh, sorry, partly vendor, but partly retailer. Once you come to marketplaces, marketplaces is all vendor. It's a hundred percent. Your success or failure on the marketplace depends on the people there. And it's not, not like the retailer is going to decide to push Coca-Cola more or not. Marketplaces are, are, are pretty, it's a pure environment, but it's an, an environment where those marketplace people have to be really good at their jobs for you to be top of, top of that pile. So I can see the value in separating it out. I think what needs to be understood is it needs to be in context of everything else that's going on. And that means that you need to have rules of operation and rules of engagement. If you separate it out, it's fine, but what are the rules of engagement and how does it impact your business? And the reality is, is the, the business needs to be margin accretive. You can, you can grow Amazon businesses that can be quite profitable. I've also seen businesses where Amazon hasn't been a 
great profitable accounts. So splitting it out there might not be the right thing to do. So I think from an operation point of view, yes, that can be very useful. From a broader context point of view, you know, some channels perform a role for you and you've got to have a clear channel strategy for each. You can't grow at the same rate in every single channel and therefore you need to have quite clear guidelines. So marketplaces are great growth rate channels, but they need to have a clear path to profitability. If they don't, you need to make sure that you, you pull it back. Um, and in our work in businesses and, and led teams where the channel that I've been working in is actually growing too fast. So okay. we had to take specific actions to slow it down. And that may be reducing price discounting within the channel to, to not get as much growth out the channel. It may be reducing frequency of promotions. So sometimes grocery businesses are great because there's huge volume, but there's lower margins. Therefore, you've got to balance that out. And I think that's certainly an opportunity that I've seen certainly in our business and, and in other businesses is having a clear, deliberate channel strategy with an idea of why you want to be there. You know, we're, we're busy expanding our marketplace business in Europe and we've got a clear, we've got a clear view on what is the difference between what we're trying to do with an Amazon versus all other marketplaces yeah. and how does that fit into our overall strategy? So I think there needs to be, I think what I'm saying is there needs to be commercial frameworks that guide your decision making. So um, what, what are the, factors that come in when you're looking at when you're evaluating a new marketplace because we're in a time now where marketplaces are a dime a dozen um technology yeah. like miracle marketplace so they make it very easy now for almost anyone to become a marketplace yeah which is great it means that there's no end of selling opportunities and these are all usually platforms that have traffic and are looking at the marketplace model as a way to add SKUs without having to yeah. take on the risk of that inventory or, you know, figure out where they're going to get half a million new SKUs from. Opening the doors to new brands is a very good way of servicing the existing traffic. But when you're looking at non-Amazon channels, Dang. of which there are a, a, a ne never-ending amount coming up, what are the factors that you take into consideration to decide whether or not this is something that's going to be interesting or do you spray and pray? No, I think you've got to. I think you've got to go through and through a couple of steps, and certainly the steps that I I try and look for is one is understand how it, it it's funny how you sort of look at things and you go, let's understand what marketplaces can do for the business that the business is not currently doing itself. So, for example, marketplaces around the world. If if you look at if you look at countries and retail development around the world. Marketplaces is usually the first thing that pops up in terms of an e-commerce thing because it's, it's a wide assortment and it gets, it gets great reach. So certainly for us, we look at marketplaces, particularly in certain countries where we may not have a lot of feet on the street and an office and we may be going through distributors. We're looking at that as, as, as a market entry to so if you take some of the ones in Eastern Europe, for example, which are, you know, those in, in our types of categories are still emerging in terms of, in terms of their usage, whereas industrialized big factories, large buildings, um, going on in, in construction projects going around in certain countries, those markets are pretty big. So first one is we look at it as a form of market entry. So how do I enter a market? How do I grow in that market? 
Um, and if you look around the world, there there are fantastic examples of retailers who do that on marketplaces. You got Flipkart and Amazon in India are doing a fantastic job there, and and India is a, a a challenging environment for any company to 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 succeed in. So marketplaces can be a a lower risk entry. So yeah. market entry is definitely one. Um, looking at where we want to control the experience more. So marketplaces, we know as many buyers, many sellers, and the many sellers means in some of those marketplaces, our products are there, but are the right ones there and the ones that we want to push in that market there? So we'll look at some of those markets and go, yeah, I think I want to be on that marketplace because it's not being serviced in the, in, to the level that we want it to be serviced because as retailers are putting on or individuals putting it on small businesses. So we we'll look at that as an opportunity to better control the experience and the sort that you receive it. Some of the other considerations that we look at is the the marketplaces that get a lot of love from consumers and e-commerce people in general is is horizontal marketplaces. So wide assortment, large category spread, Amazon, etc. But I think the marketplaces that are emerging, some of them are more specialized. So Mano Mano, for example, is one that we're we're working hard to to get on and control a bit more. It's a home improvement marketplace. It's a bit more specific to our industry. Those marketplaces offer you a different set of shoppers who shopping for different reasons. Potentially, some may be less price sensitive. You know, they're shopping in those types of vertical marketplaces because they have a specific need, and it's not necessarily a need where price is the first thing. Price is important, but it's not the need. So I think. You've got to balance those two things about how do I go for broad penetration with how do I go for specifics where I may be able to make a bit more margin. And you may be able to put assortment on those places that people understand. You know, we've got over 200,000 SKUs in our business, and the trend for retailers overwhelmingly has been over the last sort of 15, 20 years has been to reduce the assortment that they're carrying. So marketplace is an opportunity to to put those products out there that may the retailers may not want to carry in every single store. So the shopper still has access to them. They just may not get them in in a physical environment. When you're looking at marketplaces now as an opportunity for you to go direct to consumer, how do you balance that with your customers your B2B customers, your retailers, your B&Qs, your OBs, your whoever, yeah. you know, your large hardware stores and your small hardware stores, they're buying your products. I imagine they're probably still your biggest customers. Yeah. Compared uh, in terms of in terms of percentage, how do you sell on marketplaces without upsetting those relationships? So I, so I think we've all been quite used to sitting there and going, yeah, it's a, it's all about a relationship, it's all about a relationship, but ultimately Maybe it's a bit mercenary to say we're all in this for the money, but we, but we probably are. And it's about understanding, first of all, what the shopper wants and where we want the shopper to be and where we want them to get the best experience. And then how do we make money? So, you know, that's why I keep on coming back to the point of have a clear view of your marketplace business and how you've set up the commercials around that and what's, what's the objectives you're trying to drive so that when those commercial discussions come and there's discussions of we have a relationship there it may be yes but i'm getting exposure to a huge bunch of customers that are, you're unable to serve or you're we, we still are trying to get to serve so i'm expanding there 
And also, I have a great margin business there. So I'm making more money in this particular environment because I think we, we for a number of reasons, I think manufacturers have got quite used to it. sort of every single year just going and sitting there and going, yes, retailer X is going to grow, retailer Y is going to grow. And I think e-commerce amplifies the need to be more, more deliberate about those choices of which customers you're going to back and support because this part of money is not infinite and we need to be, we, we need to allocate the capital to be spent in some shape form or size so it's about going and say what's the projected growth rates in the bricks and mortar business versus the e-com business and what's the margins that we're going to make because every sort of channel has a different reason for being there and a different way you can leverage it yeah i, I go back to um but my days at Coca-Cola, and one of the interesting things there was how you use things like quick service restaurants like McDonald's. Um, great acquisition channel for people to try Coke and try various things because it's bundled with a meal deal. You're going to get it. You're pretty much going to do it anyway. So there may be more investment in going into that channel for that reason, that it's about acquisition. It's, but it's not necessarily going to be huge volume. The huge volume will come from the supermarket business. So I think when you look at e-commerce from the same, through the same lens and marketplaces through the same lens, what role is it playing in your overall channel strategy? It may be a growth channel, and therefore I'm getting great turnover growth, but how much profit is there a path to profitability, et cetera? And then as and when that channel dips, how do I pull back the investment if I need to? And how do I make decisions between the channels? So I think, you know, that's where I've been pretty fortunate, I think, because I've sort of done both sides of the fence. It's been able to sit there and say, guys, it's still about reaching the consumer fundamentally. It's just what is the best way to do it that gets them engaged in our products at the best possible return on our investment. Sometimes that's econ. But we've also got to be open to the fact that sometimes we may need to do some work to make e-com a better channel like that. So do some more work on understanding your ASINs and your profitability on the marketplace by SKU so that you can get a better business return. But I guess it also doesn't have to be one or the other. Coming back no. to the differentiation between marketplaces as a sales or a marketing channel, there's no reason that marketplaces can't also be an option for you as a brand to support your retail customers to succeed. For example, if you've got a retailer who would like to be offering your products on marketplaces, they're probably doing so anyway, whether or not the brand has yeah. you know, given a green light, the products are going to be on there anyway. So it's in the brand's interest to enable that retailer to do so well. And that brand doesn't necessarily have to add inventory. They don't have to say, yeah, no. okay, we're going to sell the products as well. But they can support the retailer by saying, hey, you know what, we'll we'll go onto Amazon, we'll get the brand registry, and we'll create some good A-plus content, and we'll create the pages that you can then add inventory in your pricing to, or, you know, we'll, we'll create some eBay yeah. templates that you can use, or we'll, you know, we'll work with Mano Mano directly to help create some listings that you can latch onto and be a seller on, and we'll just support you from a marketing perspective to make sure you've got the tools that you need to do that. But I think... You mentioned it specifically with with using it as an option for market entry. That's also a way to attract new retailers in those countries where Absolutely. maybe yep. they 
aren't familiar with the brand yet, okay, Stanley Black & Decker, most people know, but for, for smaller brands, perhaps it's an option that, you know, you could expand to Romania and get local, uh, get some local retailers because they notice the traction that the products are getting on Emac, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, I think this is, I think what we're, what we're coming down to is have a clear strategy so that you can understand how you leverage it. And I think it's not an either or, it's an and. And I sort of often compare marketplaces to hypermarkets in Europe because hypermarkets were always designed at the beginning to have a larger catchment area and have a huge assortment of everything from electronics through to sporting goods through to groceries, etc. But you didn't choose to not go into the hypermarkets, but go into the supermarkets. You used both, you just used them for, for different purposes. And I think when we look at a digital channel like marketplaces, marketplaces for me are like the hypermarket of the internet. There's there's obviously some other features involved in that. You, as we know, multiple buyers, multiple sellers, larger assortment, but they fundamentally do have a real role for you and you need to make sure that they are in your strategy and how you're going to get there. Because I think the one thing that I, it, it may sound cliched, it may sound flippant and optimistic, you know, choose, choose your adjectives here. But I believe as brand owners, what we're trying to do is get our shoppers to have the best possible of our experience of our brand wherever they may choose to interact with our brand. We've recently been working on what is our role? What's our purpose as, as an e-commerce team? And I think it's important for e-commerce teams to go and look at that. Because in the context of a larger business, you've got to understand how you're, you're distinctive in that organization. Because otherwise, you're just like everybody else. And well, you know, apart from being, throwing out some uh, acronyms that nobody else understands, um, there's got to be more strings to the bow. So, you know, I think e-commerce teams, like what we're, what we're emerging towards is helping our retailers do, do better digital business. So and how do we enable our retail partners to do better digital business? We've got the resources to execute and create content and research it and have the capabilities internally that a retailer may not necessarily have. And therefore, how do we bring more than just a product to them, but an understanding of how to attract, attract the right customer in the right way with digital being the main driver behind it? Do you sell every product on every channel or do you, how do you distinguish that? So it's not, I, I think in various businesses I've worked in, some have had a more formal approach of a clear channel understanding and that channel understanding would be prefaced on an understanding of the shopper and where they shop. So if you come back to that approach and you then say, this is the consumer shopper. These are the channels that they may interact with. Therefore, here's the broadest possible assortment I may offer to anybody in that retail channel. Okay. So if it's home improvement, um, BNQ and Amazon may have pretty similar assortment entitlements. So I use entitlements because not all of them take every single one of your products, but they're entitled to a set of SKUs. They're equally not entitled to others. Our, our process is, is room for improvement on that. It needs to be a bit more codified, but that's probably just me wanting a bit more structure. But I think that that's very useful. If you start consumer first and be, 
customer or consumer focused and then work backwards, those channel decisions can become relatively easy to do. And with the technology that you have nowadays, it's, it's actually not too difficult to see where people are shopping. Is it a resource issue? Is it that you don't have the ability to offer every product on every marketplace? Or is it that you just, you actively want to restrict that an Amazon shopper can't see every product that you've got and a mano mano shopper can't see every product because you feel like they shouldn't be able to because that's not the right shopper? I think it's about tailoring it to that shopper and saying, you know, the, the chances of success in the conversion and our effort versus reward is much more, much better through a tailored assortment. We've got a lot of one lot of products which are very specific in terms of their application. So they don't need to be everywhere and they can't be everywhere because it's we're going to spend an inordinate amount of time explaining to shoppers how to use this and where what the use case. Good. So it's it's very specific to that. And I think treating marketplaces as this endless aisle, I think we we've got to move away from that thinking. It's endless in terms of capability but it's not endless in terms of attention. Yeah. Shoppers' attention is not endless. doesn't matter that you can put 100,000 products on Amazon. Are they all going to get some attention that results in sales? And the clear answer is no. Um, so, so be more focused on a, on a, on a better, um, higher-performing assortment on, on marketplaces like Amazon rather than trying to put everything. Um, and then seek out the other marketplaces that have specific applications. So some of the ones that we're not on yet, but we are reviewing is things like, um, there's agri, there's an agricultural marketplace in, in Denmark, which is quite an interesting one that we had a look at. And they sell a billion euros a year. What's it called? It's called Makers. Okay. M-A-Y-K-E-R-S. Um, and they sell agricultural equipment. Um, so there's quite a specific one which can then provide an outlet for that channel to go and sell the product specific to that market. You know, so I, th I, I think you, you, you've got to, it's, it's the one thing I love about e-commerce is you've, to, to actually utilize it properly, understand how all of these channels are different and understand what they each bring to the party. Omnichannel brings some things that other ones don't. Marketplaces bring some things that others don't. But it's about understanding what's the difference between those and how do you leverage them. So changing gear quickly, let's look forwards. What do you see? You're working for a company that is already planning what's going to be on its website at the second half of next year and we're still in February. Yeah. So I guess you've got some kind of crystal ball. What's coming? Where's e-commerce going in the next year or two? So for us, it's, it's, I, I think we're making some interesting choices. We're focusing specifically on dealers through, we've got a great new outdoor business that we've been building through acquisitions and internally over the last couple of years. So we're going to double down on dealers and how we get to market there. So these dealers are the ones who take the big ride on lawnmowers and that type of thing. They want a digital experience. How can we enable a digital? integration, deeper digital integration with them to help them sell more and us sell more. Because they're an important cog in how we're going to market. They service the machines, they take them to the customers, they demonstrate how to use them. So it, there's that part of the business which is really direct online. We are leveraging marketplaces around the world and that'll be a big expansion for us in Europe, in Latin America 
and through Asia, we see a lot of opportunity in marketplaces. There's a lot of existing traffic. There's a lot of existing search interest. Can we convert that search interest is really what we're trying to do. The other focus is B2B. How do we enable our customers? From what I've seen, and it depends on the different industry types, some of them are easier to launch D2C in, and there's some are easier to launch B2B in. So, you know, in our type of business, we do quite a lot of B2B because in many of the markets that we operate, some of the less mature markets from a retail point of view, they're not big chain retail stores. So we're not doing lots of the EDI orders in the old sort of terminology. We're enabling those guys to go to market and order our products through, through B2B sites. So for example, in India, we have no retailers that we deal with directly. So we deal with 1,200 distributors who then sell into different parts of India. So leveraging B2B in that type of market makes a ton of sense because we can't afford a legion of people to go out and take orders from 1,200 distributors. It's heavy lifting. So that's where B2B e-commerce has a real play. I think we'll still continue to look at direct-to-consumer, and I think you will see more of that. But I think what we're focused on there is making sure we understand how to drive that business. To see everybody looks in there, yeah, just do an ad and they'll come. Um, it's quite different in our categories because there's, first of all, there's this extremely long time period that people make a decision compared to something like breakfast cereals or Coca-Cola or a t-shirt. And they only buy that product once within a year. So they're only going to buy a lawnmower once. So how do you drive business onto the next category, onto the next thing? It's almost like an addition in a household penetration idea that you got to focus on there. And that's quite a different way of operating. You know, I can tell you that Nike's launched the new shoe, send you, shoot you an email, and you all come running to the site, back to the Nike site. Great for them. They can drive a lot of business that way. We've got to learn how to drive that vertical, our industry vertical, through that type of channel, which is quite a different method of operating. Well, I think B2B is also an interesting perspective, specifically in your category, because B2B can can be anything from a distributor buying 100,000 units to one tradesperson buying a single drill. And Correct. both cases are B2B, and both could happen on a B2B marketplace. Yeah. Because that trade for that tradesperson, it is beneficial to buy on a B2B marketplace because he can put it through the books or whatever, but it's still a very, it's still two very different shoppers on that yeah. marketplace, on that B2B marketplace. So yeah, that's a, that's a, an interesting and challenge that I think is unique to, to your category, because I don't suppose Kellogg's have that issue if they're selling on a B2B marketplace. <laughs> I, and this is where the interesting thing about the dynamics of the different categories come in and how marketplaces and, and e-commerce can be leveraged in general. I think one, one of the fascinating things for me is we launched in last year in India live shopping on our B2B site. And at first, when, when we broached the idea, I was like, no, we got to focus on something else. There has to be a, something else that is a bigger opportunity here. But anyway, we, we secured some resources to, to trial it and see how it worked. And actually, in that kind of instance, it was perfectly fitted. It, you know, it was so perfectly suited to that type of category because new products, innovation in our 
in our category is a drill, which has been expanded on and changed and whatnot, has new features and benefits. And so live shopping become, became one of the best ways to explain that to an audience. Yeah. If I slip them a pamphlet or I show them a pamphlet, they read it, yeah, then they can't ask the questions. It's a sort of one-way communication. Trade presenters is totally one way, whereas live shopping and some of those digital things in B2B environments can be extremely useful because there's a guy that works for us. We can explain all the features and benefits and field questions on the fly. And then we have an add to cart on the sides that distributor can sit there and go, okay, now I understand what this does. Now I can understand how to explain in layman's language to somebody else. But the, the uh, benefit of life present shop. So I think, you know, I think one, that's one of the things, interesting things that I've learned moving from a sort of food environment to a category which requires a bit more is there's different ways to leverage digital to convert shoppers. And you've got to find out what that sort of situation is and not think that these things are all the same because then not all categories are the same. I wouldn't want to watch live shopping on a iron, for example. Yeah. Just doesn't but then not all consumers are the same. And yeah. everyone's going to, in the same way that everyone consumes content differently, everyone consumes products differently. And you never know what someone wants to use that product for. And it, yeah. it does then give you the opportunity to interact with those consumers. And that also gives you valuable feedback as a yeah brand is, okay, How wow, I never would have imagined that someone would want to use our product like that. Or we, I never would have imagined that someone would have that question. But yeah. by having that direct interaction with your end consumer, which you would never get via traditional channels, you absolutely, there's a lot of benefits there. I recently spoke with the managing director of a company called Rex Brown in the UK, who handle all of the marketplace, the UK-based marketplace, selling, fulfillment, advertising, everything for, for L'Oreal, for Unilever, for a number of very big brands. And they have about 250,000 square foot of warehouse space. Right. And they carved out a not insignificant portion of that to create three TikTok studios or three three studios for TikTok Live. And that has now gone from, I think he said TikTok represents about 20% of their overall revenue now. Wow. About six months after they've gotten started with that. Now they went hard. They really yeah. went in on that and they and it's paid off. And I think they had a lot of challenges along the way, but it just shows that there really is something to that. And bear in mind, this is a business where they've got a lot of marketplaces because they're only they only look after the UK side of things. Yeah. But they've got I think Amazon uh, Amazon's about 30 40% of their business, eBay's about 20% and the rest is smaller daily deals yeah. sites it's like that. But it's incredible to see the opportunity there in what is a very new channel and it's something that you can look at China and you can generally see what's coming. We had it with live chat. We had it with with TikTok shop now, and it's easy to look to the east and see what's coming next. That's different, I think, at the moment. That has changed, but certainly that has always been a good way of, of yeah. having crystal ball to an extent. And, and absolutely, and I think it's you, you know when I've sort of looked at that, and I've sort of I know a lot of people are very optimistic on live chat and live stream. So am I, because I think it offers the opportunity in categories like ours to explain things and get a bit more detail through. And we we need to be informative and educative in, that, in, in, in our particular categories. The interesting thing for me with how that's all working is 
that it comes back once again to understanding your shopper and understanding the consumer and the discretionary income and what they have. The Chinese model of live streaming and, and the huge growth that they're seeing is, is quite an interesting environment because China, a lot of those shoppers that are, are sort of shopping on those channels are between the ages of 35 and 45. And they are, on average, more educated and more wealthy than their parents, <laughs> with a lot more discretionary income than their, their, their parents were. If, if you look at some of those markets, the first person in, in the house to get a degree may be the child and the parents don't have degrees or, you know, and certainly that's the one value I've seen. I've worked in Africa and I've worked in Europe and in Africa, it's very much like that. You know, so a, lot, a lot of your peers would be the first person in their family to get a degree, first worker to work in big corporate. So this Chinese market has, has been that first sort of generation of 35 to 45 who have been able to experience that. Whereas I think the adoption has been a bit slower in certain categories in the, in the sort of European and American context, because the shoppers are paying off student loans, um, that they're targeting. So the 35 to 45 year olds are, are deep in paying off things. And your parents are probably the ones with more disposable income. I was about to say the tables are turned in the West because. I mean, my yeah. generation is probably the first where we won't be better off than our parents. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what impact that has. But now that's obviously talking a good few years in the future. Yeah. Um, before so I, you think start. That the, I think the adoption will come. I think it, it's, it will just be a bit more focused. It won't be as broad based adoption because the population pyramid is a lot more top heavy in, 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 in the sort of Western. European context than others, but it's fascinating to see how, how these brands are all looking to acquire and, and educate shoppers. I mean, it's, um, TikTok's, TikTok's a fascinating one. We, we haven't got there yet. You do see a lot of creations of, of stuff using our brands and, and we've dabbled in some user generated content, but I think those short form videos, channels of content always here is going to be massive just going to come in here. Okay, Dean, let's bring it home. I think we've we've chatted yeah. for far longer than anyone's going to be able to listen to on a single tube journey. So to the listeners, if you've made it this far, thank you very much for, for sticking with us. I, it's been a really great conversation. It's really interesting to hear how things are handled at a company the size of Stanley Black & Decker. It's going to be, it, it, it's a nice contrast because it's, it's good to know that the same issues face brands of all sizes and it's very interesting to hear how you guys tackle them so yeah thank you again for taking the time it's been, it's been really nice thank you and thanks for having me on thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen in there's so much to unpack from that episode and even listening back on the conversation during the editing process i picked up more and more insights from dean so i hope you also got something great from this too once again i'm jesse rag from ecameleon at eChameleon, we've built a range of products to help you easily scale your business across multiple marketplaces around the world. So do feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or get in touch via our website if you'd like to learn more about how we can help you. I'll see you next time.